Is it really too late to manage the ratio categories? We'll talk about that and more with Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 5th. It's show number 38 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN, and one of our favorite guests here at Baseball HQ Radio. We'll ask him about D. Gordon, about the ratio categories, about in-season park factors, and a whole lot more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at injuries to Joanna Cespedes, Aaron Nola, and Mac Williamson, plus more National League player news. And with the skinny from the American League, it's Jock Thompson looking at injuries to Danny Salazar and Wade Davis, at Aaron Sanchez going back into the Toronto rotation, and at more player news from the American League. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on the prospects traded in the deadline deals. In our frequent Flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Cleveland catcher Francisco Mejia and Seattle starting pitcher Ariel Miranda. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about why I love this year's double deadline. Ryan Bloomfield and Greg Fishwick are on vacation this week. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The last third of the 2016 fantasy season is underway. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. First, some really uh, unfortunate news, not just for fantasy owners, uh, not just for the Los Angeles Dodgers, but for baseball in general, I think. Uh, Clayton Kershaw has been moved from the 15-day DL to the 60-day DL. That's not good news with that herniated disc in his lower back. This got covered at Baseball HQ in playing time today on Thursday night. Uh, this is uh, this is really unfortunate, but what does it mean for fantasy baseball? Well, it's you know it obviously means at this point that Kershaw is out until August 27th. He went on the DL in, in late June, so uh, you know, and I and I don't think that's any longer than we would have expected him to be out to be out right now. Uh, no way to replace Clayton Kershaw on your on your rotation, obviously. Um, Los Angeles went out at the trade deadline and got Rich Hill, and uh, Rich Hill will certainly not replace Clayton Kershaw, but will help with the LA rotation. And uh, right now, of course, we're waiting for Hill to get over his own uh, blister issues, which have really gone on a long time. I had Hill in a league in the American League, and he hasn't pitched for a long time because this blister has been such a problem. But I think he is scheduled to pitch uh, coming up soon this next week. And so uh, maybe they'll get him into the rotation and begin to get that started. Um, Brock Stewart has been up for a, a spot start. Uh, Hugo Urias could uh, come up for another spot start on Sunday. Uh, so LA is is patching and, and pa- patching things together, uh, but that's kind of the way things have been going for them in the rotation lately. 
You mentioned Julio Arias. They also have another highly regarded prospect in Jose De Leon, doing very well in Triple A, three eighty three year earn run average, but he's getting a lot of strikeouts. Um, is there any chance he gets called up? Well, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about that. They're, they're, they're clearly at this point seem to be avoiding bringing up uh, De Leon for some reason, and so uh, maybe they'll wait until September to do that um, when the rosters expand because they've 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 had lots of opportunities to bring him up at this point. And there's nothing in the way he's pitching that would suggest he shouldn't be up. But uh, right now, that's not happening. So I, my guess is they're going to wait until roster expansion to uh, to have that happen. Uh, Rich Hill, by the way, is scheduled to start on the 6th. So uh, that is uh, where they've got him in the rotation at the moment. Uh, went through a session yesterday where the blister did not bother him. Uh, so hopefully we'll enter the L.A. rotation on uh, August the 6th. And from now till then, he'll be sitting there with his hand in a jar of pickle juice, if I remember my old wives' tales. Uh, the Dodgers not just suffering in their rotation. They've just had pitching problems all, of all kinds. They lost a couple of relievers recently. Adam Liberatore has left elbow inflammation. Lewis Coleman has shoulder fatigue. They're both going on the DL. Uh, what happens there as far as uh, some replacements for the bullpen, and uh, how much fantasy effect will any of this have? I don't think much effect on uh, with those two relievers going on the uh, on the DL. Uh, really, if, if Urias back up for a start, maybe they would keep him up and use him in, in the bullpen. Um, hard to tell. Josh Fields has been recalled, and that will help certainly with bullpen uh, bullpen backfiller for Los Angeles. But I'm going to guess not a not a whole heck of a lot of help for fantasy teams unless you're in a super deep league with injury troubles of your own. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's not a lot here for fantasy fantasy uh, players to grab hold of. Another DL move, the Mets put Yoena Cespedes on the DL. That took a while. Uh, given that he played in a game on August 3rd, the earliest he can be activated is August the 18th. They had sent Brandon Nimmo down to the uh, minor leagues when they acquired Jay Bruce. Now they've brought Brandon Nimmo back up. I remember Nimmo as something of a, of a name prospect. What's his outlook uh, for the Mets in the near future at the major league level? Well, not a whole lot. I mean, when Brandon Nimmo was up earlier in the year, he had one home run, uh, no stolen bases, five RBIs in, in 56 at-bats, uh, 250 batting average. We're projecting 40 more at-bats for the season, uh, no homers, two RBIs, 239 BA. Uh, not a lot there that's going to help, I think, fantasy teams. And with the uh, with the Mets trying to, trying to stay in the race and make the playoffs, they're not going to give Brandon Nimmo a lot of playing time. I think he's mainly bench warmer and injury backup at this point. Might do a bit of pinch running in the minor leagues. He had a, uh, exhibited a bit of speed, uh, slightly above league average uh, speed index, quite a bit above average power index, even converting for major league equivalents. And uh, Brandon Nimmo might be one of those guys, Nick, that if you need stolen bases and you have a slot, uh, you could do worse. I think that may be uh, part of the role that he plays in New York. I could be wrong about that. But he also makes a pretty good stash, I think, in keeper leagues. He's only 22. He's uh, already jumped from uh, low A to double A in a year and all the way up to the major leagues. Clearly, the Mets think they have something here. Maybe he's a guy to hang on to in a keeper league at the back of your bench. Yeah, he might be. And he might be worth, worthy in a keeper league. And, you know, it could be used as a pinch runner. And if in that case, if they turn him loose a bit on the base paths, uh, could be allowed to pick, pick up a stolen base or two. But it's important, I think, to note at this point, they've not let him run at all. His SBO is zero. Uh, so they, while they might use him as a pinch runner, they may not uh, allow him to, to run uh, other than uh, getting around the bases faster than a slower guy could do it. 
In Philadelphia, and more bad news to the injury list, Aaron Nola goes to the 15-day DL, a right elbow strain. Never like to hear that word elbow when you're talking about pitchers going to the DL. Phil Hertz looked at this for Baseball HQ. Yeah, he did, and you know, not not real good at this point for Aaron Nola. We haven't zeroed out the playing time yet, but uh, it's entirely possible that he could miss the remainder of the season. Uh, and as you said, when you hear that that right elbow strain, uh, that always is very very worrisome. You uh, you've got to be awaiting uh, cautiously the results of uh, of uh, MRIs and uh, and elbow examinations to make sure it's nothing worse than that. Uh, right now, Phil Klein gets a start in. Uh, in Nola's place, not someone you want for fantasy. 13.2 innings this year, nine earned runs, 19 base runners, two home runs. So uh, right now, there's certainly not a replacement in Philadelphia for Nola that uh, that you want to grab for your fantasy team. Yeah, Phil Klein, I was looking at him. I think he has something on the order of 50 innings for his career at the major league level. 593 ERA, 146 whip. Pretty decent uh, dom rate, though. Nine strikeouts per nine innings is pretty good, and he has pretty decent control at two walks per nine, giving him a control ratio of five strikeouts for every walk. But again, the outcomes aren't that good, and he, uh, I don't know, desperation measure, I guess, if you you really need a pitcher who's going to pick up some starts and pick up some strikeouts, but that's about it. Mac Williamson, the San Francisco outfielder, has gone on to the DL with a left shoulder strain. Rob Carroll looked at this at Baseball HQ. Yeah, he made a, made a cross-body throw during the July 31st game against Washington and immediately got replaced by Gregor Blanco and had Tommy John surgery in 2014, so his recovery might be a little more complex. Really was uh, beginning to look like someone who was worth worth owning in fantasy leagues. Had his best month as a major leaguer, hitting 264, 286 uh, expected batting average, four home runs, 11 RBIs. Uh, so beginning to look kind of good. So that's unfortunate that uh, uh, that he went on the DL at this point just when he was beginning to look like someone who could be of some fantasy value. And you know, for a while, Mac Williamson was quite a fantasy darling in the daily games because he was playing, he was doing pretty well, and his salary was quite low in those games. I don't know. They, they adjust the salaries, of course, over time, but a lot of people really liked Mac Williamson week in and week out in the, in the daily games. Uh, so he's gone. Uh, who gets his playing time? Uh, you know, it's it's uh, hard to tell at this point. Uh, Hunter Pence was uh, was is back, and it already begun to affect Williamson's playing time. Um, Blanco will continue to get playing time as a defensive replacement, probably. Um, so, but that's probably about it. Uh, uh, on the active roster, a a, a, a Hiri Adrian Anza uh, returned from a fractured foot uh, and took his place on the active roster. Not a fantasy asset at all. Yeah, Blanco's not having a good year. He's hitting a lot of ground balls, but not using his speed to to great effect. Uh, again, if if something is better than nothing, then maybe Blanco could be worth looking at, but uh, not a fantasy asset in the real sense. Uh, we have a bit of a closer go-round still going on between injuries and trades. In Milwaukee, they sent Will Smith and Jeremy Jeffries out of town. Uh, Tyler Thornburg takes over as closer. Tyler Thornburg takes over his closer in Milwaukee. Tyler Thornburg has been looking good all year and is someone we've been saying to kind of keep your eye on. 161 BPV, 2.27 ERI, 0.96 whip, all the kinds of things you would look for in a uh, in a closer. Huge dom, 12.6 dom, uh, 2.9 control. So uh, outstanding command, uh, getting the strikeouts, uh, uh, velocity in the mid-90s. Uh, so I think really a good a good opportunity for Tyler Thornburg and someone who could grab hold of the job and really run with it. Uh, two games has passed in the last week, uh, one save, uh, three strikeouts and two innings pitched. Uh, I didn't allow any earned runs. So uh, 
right now, Tyler Thornburg is looking good as someone to kind of take off in that spot. Lurking behind uh, Tyler Thornburg is Corey Nabel. He, at the start of the year, there was a lot of speculation that he might be in the mix. Is he still? Yeah, you know, certainly Corey Nabel is not someone to dismiss. Uh, uh, 14.5 Dom, which is very, 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 very solid. So if, if Thornburg fails, Nabel is someone who could step up in, into that situation. So, uh, you know, definitely someone to keep an eye on. But if, uh, the, as I said, Thornburg looks like the kind of guy right now who could take this job and run with it. Yeah, and sometimes it's good to have that second guy, not because you're expecting the guy to fail or necessarily uh, expecting to get hurt. I don't re- recall that Tyler Thornburg has any particular injury history, but if the team happens to come up on three outings in three days kind of situation for the existing closer, sometimes they'll just sit him down on that third day and let the other guy have a crack at it. In the meantime, Corey Nabel's not going to kill you in the ratios or anything. He'll help you there. So uh, keep an eye on Corey Nabel as a guy that you might still want to have, even though uh, saves are not likely to be numerous. Uh, over in Arizona, Tyler Clippard's been sent out, and uh, Jake Barrett takes over as the closer there. What's, uh, what should we make of Jake Barrett? Yeah, Jake Barrett probably will have a bit of a long leash as the closer there to see what to see what he can do. Uh, the pin is shorthanded at this point, and so uh, they're going to give Barrett some leash. And unfortunately, Barrett Barrett had a bad game the other night. It's one of those games that you know you 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 uh, we we all know you can go out and have a terrible game just because you're off. And uh, in two thirds of an innings, he allowed four in runs, uh, gave up uh, three walks, two hits, uh, looked absolutely awful. Probably not going to get him pulled from the closer role. It was uh, it was not a safe situation. Uh, and if you look back, those 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 three walks that he gave up in that in that one inning, that two thirds of an inning, the last time he's not given up that many walks in any outing all season. And to go back to find the third walk he had given up previous to then would be June 29th. So between June 29th and August the third, gave up only two walks. Uh, all together and four the other night. So I would not look at that line and say, ah, this guy isn't worth anything. Jake Barrett is worth something. He's pitched very, very well. All the numbers right now are, are badly warped by that bad two thirds of an inning. Uh, but, uh, really a good opportunity, I think, for Jake Barrett to grab hold of this job and take off with it, which he could certainly do. He had a terrific July. I think he had uh, 10 innings, 11 strikeouts. I think he only allowed a single run. That was terrific. Now, uh, Gen- we covered the, the story. Uh, Rob Carroll of BaseballHQ.com quoted General Manager Dave Stewart saying Barrett will be the closer. Enrique Burgos, they're going to look at as a setup guy and Daniel Hudson for the seventh inning. Um, any, and It doesn't look like Burgos is the kind of guy you want because he has such trouble with walks. Right, yeah, he doesn't look like the kind of guy you would want, and I, I'm I'm wonder if that's going to work for them. It may we may find Daniel Hudson being moved into the eighth uh, very soon and and doing setup. So uh, at this point, certainly Arizona is looking to. This is almost like an extended spring training outing to see how they might set up their bullpen for for next season, uh, and I'm sure that's a, that's in fact what they're going to be really looking at. I mean, you've got to remember Arizona's had a bad. A bad year with some guys out, with uh, with uh, Pollock out for the for the year, and Peralta on the DL a long, long time. Uh, so they've been hampered all the way along the way, and they're now going to look at what do they have for next season, what kind of moves do they need to make in the off season, uh, how can they uh, make sure they're a contender next season. And we should say Doug Dennis of BaseballHQ.com, the bullpen's columnist, did a terrific job covering this story as well. In St. Louis, uh, Matt Carpenter has been on the DL with an oblique strain, a rare bit of good news on on this edition of Baseball HQ Radio. He's been activated. 
So uh, what, what's going to happen with Matt Carpenter, and how does St. Louis's playing time get affected? Well, Matt Carpenter is one of the guys that are kind of flexible, and they'll likely use him at second base or use him at third base. And so playing time for Colton Wong and Greg Garcia and Johanny Peralta and uh, Jed Gajorko will all get kind of moved around. Um, so, it, you know, it, it's it's all going to be a kind of a, a moving uh, a moving target, but you, you can bet that that um, all of those guys will be getting into ball games fairly regularly. Uh, the thing about Matt Carpenter, Matt Carpenter before the injury was really taking off. His monthly BP Vin trend from April to June, 63, 95, 171. So uh, Matt Carpenter was starting to look very, very good and uh, may certainly be able to uh, to pick up where he left off, hopefully, at once he gets the rust out of his system. Yeah, out of all those guys you mentioned, Wong, Garcia, Peralto, Jorko, it it certainly seems obvious to me that Matt Carpenter will be the getting the lion's share, and everybody else will be getting whatever's left over after Carpenter gets his. And uh, I think Peralta probably is going to benefit a little bit in playing time because they put El, El Edmus Diaz on the DL as well with a hairline fracture of his thumb, and there's no time back. So uh, Johnny Peralta could really be playing shortstop uh, almost as a full timer. Yeah, he could. He could indeed. Uh, with uh, with Diaz on the DL, so that can make a real difference. If I was a Greg Garcia owner, though, I'd be uh, pulling on my collar and looking over my shoulder. Both at the same time, I'm very flexible. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Finally, Mike Leak, the uh, St. Louis pitcher, had a terrible outing on Thursday against his old team, the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, what do we make of Mike Leak's struggles? Yeah, Mike Leak's had an awful outing. Seven earned runs, eight hits, a one walk, and five uh, plus innings pitched. Uh, ERA is up to 4.8, whipped at 1.34. Last six starts have been very, very bad, a 6.69 ERA, uh, four home runs and 35 innings pitch. So Mike Leake is struggling. So it just depends on uh, when they decide to pull the plug on Mike Leake and, and uh, bring up prospect uh, Alex Reyes to see uh, how he can do. Alex Reyes uh, looks like he could be uh, quite something. I'm, I'm kind of eager to see what he can do. Yeah, he could indeed. Alex Reyes uh, has uh, looks like he could be very, very good. Plus-plus uh, fastball. Um, so Alex Reyes could uh, could be very, very useful once he's brought up. And there is some speculation he could be brought up as soon as this weekend, but I guess they uh, went with Jaime Garcia on short rest. So for, for now, we're going to have to keep sitting and waiting. Uh, he's coming back off a PED suspension, his second, I believe, so that might raise a few eyebrows. But he is the number five prospect on the BaseballHQ.com Top 100 Prospects list. This guy can really bring it. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of excited to see what he can do at the major league level. Yeah, very definitely. I, it looks as though uh, he's, he's someone who could be very useful for fantasy owners certainly on a in a keeper league Alex Reyes is someone you want to, to grab hold of uh, once he comes up and could do very well right off the uh, off the bat and I'm quite sure that if any kind of keeper league with prospects or minor league or taxi rosters whatever you want to call them reserve rosters I'm sure Alex Reyes has already spoken for it, but if he's not keep an eye on it some leagues don't allow prospects into rosters until they're actually called up Nick thanks a million for helping us out we'll talk to you again in a week's time you're very welcome it'll be good to see you next week and hopefully we'll have better news and not all DL news to talk about yeah isn't that the case that's for sure Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and of course our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. 
Hey, PD, good to be here. How you doing? I'm doing just fine, Jock. Better certainly than Cleveland starter Danny Salazar and his owner, Salazar, has been placed on the disabled list with what they're calling elbow inflammation. And you just never like to hear that word elbow in connection with any pitcher and doctors and medicine and stuff. Mike Clevenger will take Salazar's rotation spot for the time being anyway. Obviously, this is a blow to Salazar owners and to the Indians, but how interested should fantasy owners be in his replacement, Mike Clevenger? Well, it's kind of interesting. Clevenger is one of those guys who's pitched really well in AAA and even better recently since June. Uh, he's had a, a sub-3 ERA and a 3-1 to one, uh, strikeout-to-walk ratio in 60 innings at AAA. And scouts and analysts really like him. I've seen his name included in uh, most uh, midseason top 100 lists over the last month, and I own him in, in one of my leagues. But he's really struggled at the major league level, and he struggled again Thursday uh, in, in place of Salazar. Now, it was against a, a red-hot Minnesota offense that had torched the entire Cleveland rotation over the, the previous games of the series. But I watched uh, Clevenger pitch yesterday. Uh, uh, he, he struggled with his control again. Uh, then fastball command, he came in with his fastball right over the plate in a few pitches. He tired after throwing 90 innings in the fifth inning, and he was removed before getting anyone out out. Uh, uh, he, he's, he's really struggled, like I said, in his, in his five outings now. Um, he's going to get opportunities uh, uh, with Salazar's injuries. I'm not sure Cleveland really has much choice but to start him over the next week or two. They could go back to Cody Anderson, who hasn't been much better. But barring his turning on a dime, I'd be a little cautious here. I looked earlier at his uh, pitching game log at BaseballReference.com. We do a similar thing at Baseball HQ as PQS logs. And his first three outings during the season were starts at Cincinnati, at the White Sox, and home to Baltimore. And he was terrible in all three of those. Four earned runs, six earned runs, four earned runs. Uh, didn't get out of the, the uh, fifth inning but once. His ERA climbed up near nine, and then he takes a little time off in the minor leagues, comes back, faces Minnesota, and ordinarily we would say Minnesota, hey, it's an easy game, but Minnesota's been really pounding the ball of late, and uh, geez, you know, it just still isn't good. He only gave up two earned runs, but he still didn't get out of the fifth. I don't know. Uh, if Mike Clevenger's going to do something, I'd like to see some evidence of it sooner rather than later. Yeah, this, that's kind of my call on that, too. I watched him, and, and I wasn't impressed. And, uh, yeah, Minnesota's been interesting. They have uh, they have a lot of offensive depth, so I'll, I'll cut him a little slack there. But uh, it was awfully discouraging to, to see him pitch two very good months in the minors and then come up and do that in his, uh, in his first start. So it, it might be more of the same. Uh, I would not be all in here. In fact, I actually reserved him that game against Minnesota for, for both of those reasons, the fact that Minnesota has been doing well and Clevenger still has to prove himself at the MLB B level. And I'll probably reserve Clevenger the next game too. And if he does start doing well, I'm probably going to cut him. <laughs> It might come to that. Yeah, his four home runs he's given up already. Uh, 17 strikeouts in 20 innings. That's not too bad, but he's also walked 13 guys. Boy, there's a lot here not to like. Uh, down in Houston, another elbow injury. Lance McCullers goes to the DL, and this has led the Astros to throw the dice on a top prospect, Joe Musgrove, entering their rotation. How should owners view the rise of uh, Joe Musgrove as a major league pitcher? Yeah, I think a little differently than uh, than uh, Clevenger. Um, he, he's a guy we watched in San Diego at the Futures game, and I came away pretty impressed. I think he got three straight ground ball outs in the first inning, and that's no fluke. He's thrown a ton of ground balls in, in his minor league work. He's got number three upside. Uh, he's got very good command, very good strikeout-to-walk ratio. 
Um, and, and Houston's going to be very cautious with, McC with McCullers in his elbow. And, and Houston's rotation otherwise is also shaky. So I see plenty of opportunities for Musgrove, again, with the caveat that he's a, he's a rookie. Uh, his, uh, his, his first appearance was very good. He struck out eight in four innings, only gave up one run. Um, obviously, uh, being a, 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 a new player to the majors, anything can happen in two months. But I'd be more inclined to take a chance on him right now than on Clevenger. He has looked pretty solid in the minor leagues. He's especially been tremendous with his control. I was just looking at his stat line through the minors. His worst season, which is the most recent one, uh, was around 1.1 walks per nine innings. That's just tremendous. He hasn't given up any home runs. He gives up relatively few hits per nine innings. Everything about this guy looks pretty good. He's a he's a highly rated prospect. Baseball HQ says he's an 8C, which is a all-star caliber player with a 50% chance of reaching that ceiling. And uh, he's climbed up through the ranks pretty quickly as well. Yeah, uh, I, I think we both like him. Um, I think the only the only problem that he, he might run into, he's around the plate a lot. Obviously, if you miss in the majors by inches, you could get your your lunch handed to you. But uh, yeah, he's 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 the kind of guy I would uh, I would definitely take a shot at if I needed pitching right now. Mid nineties fastball. He's got a pretty decent slider. I guess the question will be, can he develop that third pitch? Uh, the BaseballHQ.com scouting staff says he's got a changeup that they describe as coming along, and uh, as you suggest. Uh, the uh, major league hitters are not where you want your changeup to be coming along. You want it to be there. Yeah, exactly. Well put. <laughs> the Blue Jays reversed course on a decision they announced a little while ago. They said they were planning to move Aaron Sanchez into the bullpen pretty much to protect his arm via an innings limit without just shutting him down. Now they've uh, changed their mind a little bit. They've announced that they're going to go to a six-man rotation with Sanchez in it. Now, it seems like there will be quite a few knock-on effects here, potentially affecting the entire Jays staff, which has been pretty good of late. What should we expect? Yeah, this one's kind of interesting. The, the Jays kind of want to have their cake and eat it, too, on this one. They want to, they want to protect uh, Sanchez uh, from, an, from pitching too many innings, obviously, giving his recent history. But they want to keep him in the rotation because he's obviously been pretty terrific all season, and they're in a pennant race. Uh, I think all, some of this is on the heels of acquiring uh, Francisco Liriano, um, perhaps maybe giving everybody some rest down the stretch is good. Um, but, but like you said, uh, you know, if, uh, they might be protecting Sanchez, um, if they protect him all the way to the end of the season, it'll, it'll give him maybe two fewer starts, maybe, maybe another, if they decide to skip him for a week and it'll help, uh, Marco Estrada with that sore back. Uh, maybe everyone benefits from this, uh, J.A. Happ owners might want to worry a little bit, uh, on normal four days rest. He's been very good. 1.770 RA, 0.94 whip, um, on longer days, on five days, uh, which is what he would get in a six-man rotation, an 8.25 ERA and a 1.75 whip. So this is something that should be watched. It is something that should be watched. I'm a half owner, so I'd watch, I tend to watch most of his starts. And uh, something else I've noticed, he doesn't get as deep into the game on the longer rest either. I think his uh, around 27 batters per game on four days rest, only 22 on uh, the long rest of five days. That worries, it uh, should worry every half owner. It certainly worries me. On the other hand, uh, maybe once you get into a different kind of routine, Boy, it's really hard to say, isn't it? Because most of these guys are creatures of habit, and then the team comes along and says, you know how you've been doing for the last two and a half years where every fifth day you pitch? Well, now it's every sixth day. 
have fun. Yeah, you really. Know, it, it, any of us would have trouble with that, wouldn't we? Yeah, it really is. It's going to be fascinating to see how long this lasts down the stretch. Uh, and on the and 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 like we we always say, two months is a real small sample size. So so who knows? But uh, obviously, you got to do the research to get an idea. I wonder if they'd be better off just giving guys games off once in a while and trying to maintain a five-man rotation with a kind of six-man subbing in now and again rather than just putting everybody on a different uh, schedule altogether. Yeah, that's a good point, too. Only you wonder how some of these guys do coming back from that rust. Uh, maybe maybe giving them some time off and then a relief performance or something like that, uh, uh, just a couple of innings in relief before they bring them back to the rotation. Uh, obviously, smarter minds than a mine have thought about this. I don't know about that, Jock. Uh, I've often wondered why, and I've talked about this on the show, why teams don't let a starting pitcher pitch on the day that he'd be throwing anyway in a game you know i mean if you've got uh, if your choice is to put your seventh reliever into a game even if it's a bit of a blowout but especially if it's a high leverage situation and you have your ace starter sitting there and he's going to be in the bullpen throwing an innings worth of pitches anyway why not let him throw them in the game you might get another what 30 innings out of your best pitcher during the course of a season and all of it in pretty high leverage situations potentially no you're right i yeah i mean good thought we had uh, a discussion of some closer go-round in the National League with uh, Harold Nichols just a few minutes ago, Jock, and uh, in the American League, same kind of deal, a lot of changes in bullpen, starting in Kansas City with Wade Davis back on the DL again. He has uh, a recurrence of a forearm strain-type issue, uh, often a precursor to some serious elbow problems, so it looks like he'll be out for a while, especially second time in a year, and Kelvin Herrera looks like he's got the first shot. Yeah, um, and, and Herrera's saved back-to-back opportunities now, August 1st and 2nd, uh, converted both, uh, gave up a hit, uh, three strikeouts in the two innings. And by pretty much every measure, if you look at Herrera's numbers through the, throughout the year, he's been, he's been closer-worthy. I mean, he's striking out more than 11 hitters per nine, barely over, over a walk every nine innings. Decent ground ball rate, 44%, no home run issues. I expect him to thrive. I do too. Uh, there had been some noise about Joaquin Soria, who has the dreaded uh, experienced closer tag working for him, despite some questionable skills. Is there any chance he elbows his way into the saves mix somehow? Uh, I'm not sure of that. It sounds like Ned Yost might be a more of a by-the-book guy who likes bullpen structure. Uh, um, you know, he he likes the seventh, eighth, nine nine inning guys. Think think Carrera, Davis, Holland last year, um, and, and the other issue is Soror, uh, Soria just doesn't have the closer skills he once had, and his numbers have really taken a hit in the second half. He came in this past Thursday with Kansas City leading by two in the eighth, gave up two hits, and then a three run homer to lose the game. He's now given up four home runs and ten runs over his last nine innings. So I, I really like Herrera's chances of holding this role. Over in Seattle, another closer loses his role, Steve Sisch has looked pretty shaky of late. Uh, Edwin Diaz, the phenom you talked about a little while ago here on Baseball HQ Radio, is going to be the closer there. But now I understand you've heard that Sishak might have been suffering from some kind of hip injury? Yeah, he um, apparently Sishak is, uh, has a left labrum tear. He's now on the DL indefinitely. So, so the job looks like Diaz is to lose, and, and he's been just outstanding in, in, uh, in his rookie season. Uh, a 53 to 8 strikeout to walk ratio over 27 innings, 48% ground ball rate. The one note of caution I would have on him is that uh, we're getting into the last two months. He doesn't have uh, 
closer experience in the major league level. There's always the worry of late season fatigue. But uh, if you're looking at at saves help, uh, obviously I'd I'd be keeping him on this uh, on this move though. Yeah, you know, I hear a lot about that, and I know people put a lot of stock, especially um, like the TV announcers who cover games, about the value of having this experience closing it. I know that when you come in and it's a one-run game and you're facing the meat of the other guy's order, it looks like a, a pretty tall pretty tall order for a young player to handle, but I remember uh, Roberto Asuna with the Jays, 21 years old, they plopped him into that situation last year, and all he did was throw strikes and get guys out. And this Diaz guy, his strikeout per nine rate, his dominance this year is almost 18 strikeouts per nine innings. That's two strikeouts per inning. <laughs> when you know you can do that, you must go into it. Uh, any situation with a certain amount of confidence. Yeah, exactly. When you're missing that many bats and they're not making any contact on you, you're a pretty good bet to uh, to get through unscathed. He's keeping the ball in the yard. You mentioned a pretty decent ground ball rate up around 50%. Boy, I, I think Edwin Diaz could be the guy, and I think he could be the guy to hold on to, a great guy for keeper leagues and dynasty leagues. Yeah, amen. I agree. And finally, down in Houston, there was quite a hullabaloo when Ken Giles didn't get the closer role coming over from Philadelphia, and it turned out that Houston was looking at financial ramifications because if he gets saves, then he gets a higher arbitration award, more in free agency. So they turned uh, to their veteran Luke Gregerson. He lost the role to left-hander Will Harris. Now he's lost the role to Ken Giles. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It took uh, Giles four months, but... Uh Houston acquired him from Philly because they wanted somebody lights out in the in the uh, in the late innings and and hopefully to close, but uh, he's finally seized the role in uh, in August uh, or been given it by default. Uh, Will Harris had, was victimized by a lot of bad luck over uh, over the past month. Uh, he, he has he had an eight two two ERA when I wrote about this in midweek and a two two point seven one expected ERA, fourteen strikeouts uh, per nine and only and only two walks per nine, but he he was just giving up runs. I mean, there's there's nothing you can do about that. Bad luck. And when your team is trying to lock down a postseason berth, closing is about what have you done lately, and Giles had dominated for the past two months. So over the last month alone, you talk about Diaz, uh, Giles has struck out more than two batters uh, per nine innings, and, and he's kept the walks down. So uh, given Giles... A, previous closing experience last year in Philadelphia in which he was excellent in the second half uh, I expect him to lock down this role for the final two months of the season with Will Harris it seemed uh, in the games I watched it was not a case of giving up lots of hits it certainly wasn't a case of giving up walks it was more like every hit he gave up came at the worst possible time yeah, and, that, and that'll do it, too. All you need to do is blow two or three games for a team in a pennant race or in a divisional race, and, uh, and you're out, particularly if, you're, if, if, if there's depth in the bullpen and Houston has depth to spare there. Yes, they did. Uh, we have one more closer to talk about down in your neck of the woods. Houston Street is down with what has been called a hamstring injury. I was listening to the game, and it sounded more like a knee injury, but it's somewhere up in the upper leg. Uh, Cam Bedrosian takes over closer duties for the Angels, and before I ask you about him, I'm going to tip my hat to you on this one, Jock. I snabbed Bedrosian earlier this year in my tout league after you talked about him here on Baseball HQ Radio, and I'm going to be out of the saves race, but he's going to be a great trade chip if he performs and holds the role. So what is the outlook for, do they call him Bedrock Jr. or Cam Rock? What is it? Well, uh, he almost inherits the role by default. It's such a poor angel system and bullpen this year. On the other hand, his skills do stand out, and he's definitely closer worthy. Uh, um, he's uh, he's really cut his walk rate uh, 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 
way down this year. Um, Street, uh, it, it's going to be interesting. It's hard to say how, how long he's going to be out. It is a knee injury, not a, not a hamstring, as you as you noted. Uh, he signed through 2017, and, the, and, and if he's healthy, the Angels are going to probably try to help Street retain his value so they can move him. Anyone looking at Street nowadays, though, has to realize he's not the pitcher he was by any measure. So I'm not even sure how well, how, how long the Angels can stay with him in the ninth inning, even if he even if he returns healthy. Um, I like Bedrosium longer term. Uh, occasionally, he he still has some control issues. Uh, he coughed to save up the other night, uh, but obviously his strikeouts to walks are very good. He throws uh, uh, a, 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 a mid 50s ground ball rate. Um, He's got tremendous stuff, uh, and the Angels don't have anyone else. So he's the guy I think you want uh, going forward, at least over the long term. Uh, in the short term this year, it really depends on how healthy Street is and how well he pitches. So that's still a little bit of a crapshoot, a little bit of a small sample over the short term. What are they saying about when Street is due back? Um, they're not. Um, I, I don't think they know. Um, obviously, I think they want to hold him out a little bit right now. They're not in it. They're not fighting for any sort of a postseason berth. So on that count, it really doesn't matter. And, I, and I'm not sure that anyone anyone's going to be interested in uh, trading for uh, Street in the, uh, uh, in the, during the August waivers process. Now, when I was talking to somebody in my league about uh, the possibility of trading Cam Bedrosian to him, he said he was worried about Fernando Salas, another guy with the dreaded experienced closer tag. Any chance of a role for Salas in the saves mix? You know, there is, but only if Bedrosian can't cut it. Uh, um, Salas has gotten saves in the past. Uh, the problem this year is that his ERA has deteriorated. It's closer to five than it is to four. He's given up too many home runs. Uh, pretty typical for Salas as a fly ball pitcher. I, I, I still think Bedrosian's the favorite, the, the favorite uh, as long as he can, uh, can close out some of these contests. All right, Jock, I really appreciate the update, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. Okay, PD, see you then. Jock Thompson is Director of News and Analysis, a Playing Time Analyst, and a Speculator Columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And he covers the player news from the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. We'll have a quick break here, then we'll be back with Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, I'm Ray Murphy, Co-General Manager at BaseballHQ.com. I'm inviting you to join me at First Pitch Arizona, November 3rd through 6th in Scottsdale. It's three days jam-packed with seminars, scouting reports, workshops, and fantasy drafts. And best of all, First Pitch Arizona is three great days just talking baseball with hundreds of serious fantasy players like you and all of the top industry experts. And don't forget the ball games. First Pitch Arizona is your chance to scout 2017's impact rookies from your own front row seat. To get the details and to register, Visit BaseballHQ.com and click on the giant First Pitch Arizona logo on the right side of the homepage. First Pitch Arizona. Come see for yourself why the fantasy baseball winners who attend every year call it the most fun you can have outside of draft day. A special offer of 40% off First Pitch Arizona registration ends on Monday. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our Friday feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Roto-Wire, and ESPN. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Seems like I just talked to you on Tuesday. Yeah, actually, I kept talking and talking, and I'm pretty sure you hung up on me because I saw the podcast was posted. That's right. Yeah, sometimes when you get into the groove, it's hard to stop. Uh, 
you had a column at Rotowire on Thursday talking about how fantasy players use the rest of season projections in fabricating their fab bids for the week. And you, ma- you made the comment that you think it's probably not the best way to go about figuring out what you want to bid by basing it too heavily on what the uh, projections say a player might do. Yeah, no, it, yeah, this is, I talked to this a little bit about this uh, early in the week in my uh, fab report for Masters, uh, yeah, the fab report for Masters Ball. And to me anyway, when we're putting our bids in, especially this weekend, the uh, you want to bid on sort of one of three things. And you know, a category match. If you need speed, you get a guy that is going to run a lot. If you need homers, you get a guy that's going to hit homers. That sort of thing obviously saves. That's something like that. So a category match. The second is uh, the upside. You don't care. A projection is you know the weighted average of all plausible outcomes. Well, you don't care about that a lot of times. You just need to bid on the upside because if you don't get this player's upside, you're not going to win anyway. So I don't, you know, I don't care about the mean projection. I want to figure out what this, you know, it's two-month sample. Anything can happen. But what is what is the best of anything? And that's what I need. And the third, and, and this sort of replaces, I think, you know, instead of going by the projection, go by the playing time. We don't know what's going to happen in two months. So a $10 player, an $8 player, I'm not going to put in more for the $10 player. I'm going to put in, if, if I don't have a specific need or going for upside, I'm going for the guy that gets the more opportunities, that's going to get more playing time. So that sort of feeds into the first one with homers and steals. But I know, I, I'm not interested in, in knowing, you know, look at the new HQ projections and seeing a $12 guy compared to a $9 guy. And I'm going to bid more for the $12 guy because HQ hasn't projected for 12 I care more about the uh, the upside potential and, and the specific categories where he'll help my team. You mentioned something interesting, and that is the need to focus on player upside, especially with such a short time to go in the season. And in it, it actually also applies when you're looking uh, preseason at the projections for a year in that the, the same, it seems to me, applies, that you really do want to focus, especially for later round players or end game players in an auction, on players whose projections sit here, but the upside is quite a bit higher. And, and when Owners are looking at these projections and recognizing that they're the mean of all possible outcomes. How? What is it that you're looking for to see player upside, or is it just a gut feeling? Well, a lot of times, well, I know in uh, you know we can specifically talking about ba- what Baseball HQ does is if there's a player that the uh, the the author and editor of their particular quote feels will has some upside, they put it in there. So I pay, I, pay, I, I pay specific attention, and a lot of times that's gut, but a lot of times it's a player that might be one skill away, especially a pitcher, uh, a pitcher that if he improves his control or if he improves his strikeout rate just a bit and everything else is fine, they're the players with the upside because you know, they, if they get that one thing in, in gear, I think it, it's what you're looking for. A lot of times it's simply playing time upside if a guy stays healthy. Uh, a hitter, I'll look for a guy that uh, the one skill, if he improves his contact rate, that just so many things domino off of that. So 
if I feel there's a chance that a player's contact rate will improve over the over what what you know the is expected by a three-year projection or or, or whatnot, I will. Uh, that's a guy that I'm looking for for upside. But you're right. Towards the end of the draft or an auction, because these are the players that are most easily replaceable. Is is where you want to go for the upside. I know there's there's people that believe that you need to go for the upside in the first round with the the Bryce Harpers and the whatnot. And for a while, I kind of bought into that, but I'm I for I'm back. I'm back on being much, much safer early on, and shooting for the moon later in the draft. Where, you know, if my guy didn't, if if Jabari Blash did not work out for me early in the season, well, okay, my my escape plan is Nick Markakis. You know, it wasn't the greatest, but it's something. So, you know, the year that the year that Blash actually worked out for me, well, it's great. Uh, so I, then I, I use Marcakis until I find somebody else that emerges, until Adam Duvall emerges, and I put him in there instead, and, and we're back to where we wanted to be to begin with. But, uh, you know, you're taking a chance on a Bryce Harper early, or Giancarlo Stanton, and it fails. There's not a whole lot of escape routes that can get you back to where you want to be. You know, you mentioned, Todd, the uh, the contact rate for hitters. One type of guy I like looking for is a minor league call-up who had pretty good contact rates at the minor league level, and then in the major leagues, his contact has slumped. And I often think that's a natural thing that's going to happen during an adjustment period. And so the, the player comes up, he's going to, you know, his contact rate is not going to be what it was in the minors because the pitching's better. But if he has a record of having good contact, he may be able to make that correction. It's guys who had poor contact in the minors and continue to have poor contact in the majors that make me suspicious and leery. But if a guy had decent contact at the lower level, he may be able to recover that because it is really a core skill, hand-eye coordination. Right, and to follow up on the bit, I mean, you prefer a guy that has good contact throughout the minors. But the other thing to look for, just don't look at the contact number and, 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 and as an average over the minor league career. See, a lot of guys, as you know, will struggle their first time through a, a promotion and, you know, maybe promoted the end of this year to double A and had a low contact rate. But starting next year, it was up again. So I'm not going to say ignore the low contact rate, but a lot of these guys struggle, then get it, struggle, then get it. And they bring that to the major leagues. They struggle to the major leagues and then they get it. So I, I'm not, I, you can't just look at the, oh, over his minor league career, he had a 25% strikeout rate. You need to look and say, well, I mean, it was, it was 30, 31 the first time he went to a new level. But the following year, it was in the you know, low 20s. So the same sort of thing. It shows he makes adjustments. He shows he's, uh, you know, that to me, I mean, obviously you want the guy that's good the whole time. But I don't mind the guy that shows he can make the adjustments to the next level either. You also mentioned the potential for playing time when you're looking at a at a guy who's uh, um, right now maybe not playing as much. Uh, and something else that strikes me that you need to look at is what is the roster context? Is there somebody on the roster that the team is going to give up on or is going to find it comfortable to give up on? Is there somebody ahead of him on the roster who's likely to get hurt? I'm thinking of uh, Brett Eibner, the, mm -hmm. uh, the A's, picked him up. Now, Coco Crisp's been playing really well, but Coco Crisp is a, is always like one move away from a DL stint. And as soon as that happens, everybody slides up a notch and every outfielder in the, uh, in the Oakland chain, especially with Reddick gone, all of a sudden everybody who plays outfield in Oakland is that close to extra playing time. And that's something else to factor in as opposed to getting a guy who's, who's in behind, you know, the Toronto Blue Jay outfield, for instance, where everybody's pretty much locked into a spot. 
Right, you, you know, talking about Oakland, Billy Burns is now gone as well. Actually, that was the deal with Eibner. So they're going to take a look take a look at Jake Smolinski. Um, so you're right. Now, the, the guy I was looking at last night as far as what I expect going forward is very interesting is Steve Pierce in Baltimore because, you know, he, he was pretty much full-time in Tampa, but I'm trying to find out, figure out where he, how much he's going to play in Baltimore. And it, to me right now, it looks like, He's basically going to be pretty much assured at bats against left-handed pitching. Okay, all right, that's, you know, it's less than he was getting before. But are they going to stick with Pedro Alvarez at DH against righties going forward? I think that there's an opportunity that, that, that Pierce does play a little bit more going forward. And, and he, right now, you're also going to find spots for Nolan Reimold who, you know, like like Chris, every game he plays could be his last before his DL stint. So early on, Pierce might not be getting at bats, but I, I think they're going to grow over the course of the uh, the next six weeks till he's playing fairly regularly in September. So um, that's an interesting. Pierce is an interesting. Uh, how, how much do I bid on a Steve Pierce coming up? Well, he's probably not available in AL only, obviously, but he may not. He may know. He may be off of the radar in mixed leagues, at least for the next few weeks, because I don't know that he's going to get enough playing time, but I don't know if I want to drop him either, because I think it may come back. Something else about platoon splits that's interesting, oftentimes we look at a player, especially in, as you as you mentioned, in a deeper league where you need to roster deeper, deeper down into the lineup, and uh, sometimes if a guy's going to be a platoon player against left-handed pitching, we tend to say, ah, I'm not so sure I want him because he's going to be not playing quite so much. But in the case of Steve Pierce, just for one example, his OPS against right-handed pitching is okay. It's around 800, but his OPS against left-handed pitching is like 1,200. And there are, there are players, uh, I don't think Steve Pierce is a particularly good example, but there are players for whom that platoon split is gigantic. And in fact, only, only hitting against the, the side that he's good at hitting is a net benefit to you because he doesn't amass a bunch of really poor at bats and kill your average. Yeah, I'm trying, I mean, a lot of times platoon splits, they don't have the, the necessary at bats to really be truthful either. But I mean, it's, it's usually the other way. It's usually, uh, a guy like Matt Joyce, who isn't full time anymore, so it doesn't, he's not the not so much full time, but even a full time platoon player. But um, you know, a, a guy, a similar guy that to Steve Pierce might at this point be Ryan Rua in in Texas. Right now, okay, he's with with, with Beltron in tow. He's probably now just going to be uh, a platoon uh, player against some lefties, but. What if Beltron gets hurt, and so now Rule is back to being a uh, a little bit more than just a platoon or, or fill-in player? So the roles could change. So like you said you do have to sort of. To me, it, it's not sometimes it's not who you're bidding on this coming weekend, but sort of the other players on your roster that you may need to keep an eye on because of all the moves at the deadline. How that can how that's going to affect your roster going forward, especially in mixed leagues. Where, uh, you know, AL only, I, you know, Rue was in my lineup because there's just nobody else. But some of these guys in mixed leagues, they're going to have, they're, they're playing time maybe affected a little bit. You know, a lot of time, Lonnie Chisenhall was getting a lot of run in Cleveland, even against some lefties. But now that they have Brandon Geyer in there, uh, you know, Chisenhall's probably not going to see another lefty unless it's a 12 to 1 game and they bring a lefty reliever in and they just don't feel like taking him out. Something else you mentioned uh, that uh, twigged in, in my mind, and that is when you're 
fabricating how much you want to bid on a player, it's really useful to look at who you're going to be competing against in the bidding. And the example I'll use is Matt Duffy. He's coming over as a third baseman to Tampa Bay crossing the league. Now, if you need a third baseman, you've got to try to figure out how much am I going to bid on Matt Duffy. And you need to look at the rosters of the guys around you in the, uh, in the fab standings because some of them might not need a third baseman. And some of them might not even be able to roster a third baseman without making a move that sacrifices a really good third baseman because I know Matt Duffy's going to end up playing shortstop right away. But look at the rosters of the teams you're competing against because sometimes they don't need what you need and therefore they're not going to bid on what you what you need to bid on. Yeah, that's sort of the conundrum with, with FAB the whole time is someone will look at an arbitrary list of FAB bids and go, how can this player go for that much? Well, like you mentioned, there there may have been a better shortstop available but only one team needed a shortstop and four teams needed to replace their catcher or whatever it might be so that, that, that's very important and it, especially it's not just positions but it could be categories as well if, if a team needs steals and at this point a lot of teams have enough roster, roster roster flexibility easy for me to say to to just figure out how to get Raul Montesi on your team regardless that you know if you have an opening at second you you get utility and multi-position players so you also need to take a look at uh, teams that are challenging for uh, spots in, in different uh, in the categories. And there's something you know, and, you know I'm, prob- I'm probably raining on your parade right now because that mind is wheeling again. A lot of times you're going to bid on a player so that uh, an opponent doesn't get those steals because if 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 if, uh, if a guy near you in the standings picks up Montesi, he can get four points in steals and he's two points behind you in the standings, you might not need steals, but if you pick up Montessi, and even if you put on your bench, you just prevented that guy from getting those four points and helped your team. So a lot of times, you know, steals and saves are sort of the easy categories to play that game in. But sometimes, if you, unless, if you don't have a specific need yourself, play a little defense and try to prevent an opponent from getting a player to help their roster. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, you're talking about stolen bases, and since you are, there's been a few moves that took place right at the trading deadline, and uh, they are clearly going to have effects on stolen base races in both leagues. Uh, the first one, of course, D. Gordon uh, was called back from his suspension. The Marlins say he might not play every day, and you said in a recent column, you don't care, you want him anyway. Right. Now, to, to reinforce what, at this point, I think everybody's talking about so everybody knows, D. Gordon won't be eligible for the playoffs, and the Marlins are probably going to be in the thick of the wild card race. Whether they win it or not is sort of irrelevant, because you know they're going to be in it long enough that the decision whether to play D. Gordon or to continue to put Derek Dietrich in the lineup uh, so he's ready for the playoff, or the you know the or maybe the one game playoff with Jose Fernandez on the mound, uh, they have to make that decision now. I mean, Gordon's come out of the gate you know <laughs> running, so to speak. He's getting on base. He's doing what he's always done. He's bunting. He's just doing what he's always doing, getting on base there. And if you need steals, if he's only even in mixed leagues, if if, if he's only playing four days a week, you know he's going to get a three steal game in there, and you're going to get as many steals as you would have gotten from somebody else. So, uh, what this sort of came up with is I I read a couple of questions. Someone asked me, okay, I I hear that Gordon's not going to play all the time. Do I want to trade him? So my first question is: Is this a mixed league or an NL only? They said it's a mixed league. Uh, well, NL only would be obvious. No, I mean if it's a mixed league, you know, no, I, I don't want to trade him if I know if I need steals because he's probably going to be close to the league league even if he only plays three or four games a week. Early on, he's playing all the time. 
primarily because they're able to put Miami's able to put Derek Dietrich at first base while Justin Bohr is out. But when Bohr comes back, you know, now what are you going to do with Dietrich? Are you going to float him in there at different positions every once in a while because he can play a little third? And and it's not like Martin Brado is that great that you can't give Dietrich some at bats over there. So I do think they'll find a way to to keep Dietrich fresh for the eventual in their in their minds playoff game. But um, I also, you know, I, I don't expect Gordon to play, you know, six days a week, seven days a week going forward either. I do see him getting a day off here and there uh, to let Dietrich play a little second base too. And of course, uh, you mentioned earlier that the the key thing you have to do in a in a rotisserie style category based league is you have to understand your own potential in any category. And it could be I know a lot of teams would have drafted D Gordon this year and kind of relied on him to be a category killer more or less all by himself, much as we used to do with Billy Hamilton. And then you count on D Gordon to pick you up seventy five bags, and then you just get the rest and win the category. With him out all year, it could be that that teams have fallen completely out of the stolen base race might not be a bad idea to trade D Gordon down the stretch to somebody who can use D Gordon to go by your overall competitors in that stolen base category especially if you can get something back that does help you yeah a lot of times it depends you know i i know i know at least one team who's uh picked up Jonathan VR as, as sort of a flyer and and they're not complaining that they lost D Gordon um it's a no trading league unfortunately for for said person so i can't i mean that person can't trade away D Gordon but that person isn't all that upset that uh that that they lost D Gordon because in a no trading league you, you get frustrated that you know I, I got all these extra stolen bases what am I going to do with them um so yeah that's that's definitely a good point and uh also talking a little bit about where stolen bases are in the league in general at least over the first half to the first two-thirds Stolen bases were down, which means categories are more clustered, which means a guy like D. Gordon could potentially get you an, an extra point or two over previous years when they have been, may have been more spread out. Uh, recent recent numbers are showing that that stolen bases are up again, so I don't I don't know if that's going to hold. I haven't run the numbers since uh, a couple weeks ago, but um, the the possibility all this stuff is, is great to talk about. It, it's where you are in your own league. So if you're in your own league, there's going to be a, a portion of the standings where, you know, six stolen bases get you three points. There's going to be another portion where six stolen bases doesn't get you anything. So it's it, all these nice, you know, overall global standings trends are great to talk about, but it comes down to where you are in your league. Yeah, I think that's the key takeaway, that any move that you make has to be contextualized based on where you are, where your competitors are, where you are in the overall, where your competitors are in the overall, where they're weak, and so forth. We've talked about this a lot. That's why, just as an aside, it drives me crazy when you do phone-in calls uh, on various radio shows and stuff, and or even in the Baseball HQ forums where somebody will send in a, a, a question that says, I got offered you know, Hunter Pence for uh, Kenta Maeda. Should I do it? And you go, well, I don't know, <laughs> you know, where are you in all those categories? It could be the dumbest trade ever. It could be the best trade ever. Who the heck knows? Uh, yeah, D. Gordon, of course, National League, but Kansas City made a couple of moves. Uh, they've uh, activated, newly traded for Billy Burns, you mentioned, and they promoted Raul Mondesi, another speedster. Could either of those guys be a D. Gordon-type figure for the American League? I think there's a better chance that Mondesi is because he's playing. 
Um, a lot of times you're going to hear me referencing I just looked at last night. I'm doing my own updated playing time. So I was talking about Pierce before. I don't know where uh, I don't know where Kansas City is going to use Billy Burns at this point. Uh, so long as Paulo Orlando continues to get the job done in center field, Lorenzo Cain is back. Maybe they maybe they put Alex Gordon back into a platoon situation. I don't know. And you've already got Jared Dyson in that lineup. So, I mean, there was a time where KC found a way to use both Terrence Gore and Jared Dyson. I just I just don't see how you can use you know do it again using Dyson and uh, and, and Billy Burns. They, they seem to me to be the same player at this point. So. Uh, I, I, I take notice that Billy Burns is up. If I'm in an AL-only league and I need steals, I'll, I'll, I'll put him on the radar, put him on my team if he replaces someone that's just there. But I'm not, at this point anyway, saying, okay, there's my savior for steals. Whereas Mondesi, and, and Kansas City has shown that they will run these guys. And he's hitting ninth now, and that's, you know, it's not... It's not the greatest, but the numbers do show, and especially in Kansas City, the nine hitter in the American League does run a lot, and I think Kansas City will be no exception. So, yeah, if I need steals, you know, I talked earlier about uh, what do I base my bids on. I don't take a look at Mondesi's projection because it's probably not very good. I take a look at the steals column and say, well, if I'm not going to win unless I get these points and steals, I just got to get Mondesi. I wondered when I saw that all of these outfielders all of a sudden uh, climbing up into the picture in Kansas City. Alex Gordon's having a terrible year. Yeah, he's hitting 202. His on base is barely over 300. He's typically a th- close to more like 275 average, 375 on base percentage. I wonder if Alex Gordon's still nursing some kind of injury, and maybe they they're out of the race anyways. I wonder if maybe they're just thinking they can shut him down and rotate some guys through that left field spot and see if they've got something for next year. See, that's an excellent point that cycles into what we were talking about earlier as far as let be, be a little prescient and see what can happen down the road. And that's an excellent point. And I, you know, I looked into that, po- you know, consider that possibility when I'm trying to figure out how much playing time to give Alex Gordon. I've already sort of hedged and figured he's going to lose some bats against lefties. He's an odd guy in that he, he just started, he was just striking out left and right early in the season. So he was doing terrible before he even got hurt. And when he first came back, he actually had a couple of good games, and oh, oh, great, he's back. And now he's kind of settled back into the to what he was before, where for some inexplicable reason, he's not a first-round player, but he became one of those stable mid-round players that you like to get in your in your outfield just to sort of stabilize things so you can take a chance on someone else like we were talking about. But, you know, he was the destabilizer this year with all those strikeouts. So that's an excellent point that uh, it does look like Kansas City's out of it. I don't think you're going to give up on Alex Gordon yet if you're an or, you know, as a royal player. So that is that is an interesting point where he could uh, be the one that sort of steps aside to see what you have in some of these other guys. And and even if it doesn't come to pass, it's the kind of bet you can make that you can justify. It's not like you're just throwing all your money in and saying, I'll take this, uh, I'll take this Billy Burns because who the heck knows? It's... I'll take this Billy Burns because X, Y, Z. Like there's a path to playing time that you can rationalize. It may turn out to be wrong, but it's not a flyer in the sense of just throwing some money at the wall and hoping some of it sticks. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things we say it or is, you know, judge, judge the process. Don't judge the outcome. You know, the process may not have worked the first time, but if it's a sound process, it'll work more often than not. And that's really all we can ask for. Is is uh, is is whatever what all these things that we're doing that we're right more than we're wrong, 
or you know that that it's the proper way to do things more than the improper way and you know eventually you know one of the you know we'll always do a little bit better than average but one of these years everything will come together and we're going to win you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire ESPN. And Todd, uh, we've been talking about category management in uh, category-based fantasy baseball, which I still think is most of it. And uh, I know that the something that drives you nuts, because uh, I've talked about this with you before at First Pitch Arizona and uh, offline and through email and stuff like that, and that is everybody looks at category management and says, I need to focus on the counting categories because I can see how many stolen bases I need to pass the guy in front of me or how many the guy behind me needs to pass me. Same with home runs and all the other counting base categories. And they either ignore or neglect the ratio categories because there's an awful lot of expert advice out there that this late in the season, it's very, very hard or impossible to move in the ratio categories. And I believe that if uh, you were allowed to use salty language, you might say poppycock. Yeah, I would. And I have. Um, it, yeah, it, it, there's several reasons for it. The uh, it's 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 one of those things. I wish I was able to you know give a PowerPoint presentation over the uh, over the uh, podcast. But basically, the the primary reason is the ratio categories are a lot more bunched than the counting categories. I mean, we take a look. You say, well, I only need seven homers, and I and I get another point. You know how hard it is to make up seven homers at this point of the season. It's you know the guy's not going to go and hit seven homers in a game, and you're even because those seven homers, and we've talked about this in the past too, are really more like I don't know nine or ten at this point of the year because you have to prorate the rest of the season we're about two-thirds of the way through a little bit a little bit uh closer to the end than two-thirds of the way through but fairly close to that so nine becomes 12 or 13 and then you sort of have to look to see what the teams have done to uh change their rosters to change it as well but the point being it's it's not that even five homers is a lot to make up so I think the perception being that because of their counting stats, and like you said, you can see them, well, I know I need five, and you sort of have to figure out in your head what I need my pitchers to do in order to gain my ratio point. But so they're, A, they're bunched up, and B, that uh, ratios, they can come back to you. You know, you're not going to lose homers, you're not going to lose steals, but a team is, their ERA could get worse. Maybe they're chasing wins, maybe they're chasing strikeouts, and they do it in lieu of their ratios, and if it's just, if it's the right team in the standings, that you don't care how they did in the wins and rate strikeouts compared to where you are, uh, and they come back to you in ratios, you may gain a point or two just by staying the same. So, and and it's not just me talking this and making it sound like it's right, but a lot of these commissioner services now let you track on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis the movement in the categories. So, because I this is my crusade every year, I follow this every year, and up to the last day of the season, you, you know, I do a lot of NFBC and, and the Stats Inc. standings do this. You can see there is more movement overall in the ratio categories than the counting ca- categories, even until that last week of the season. I mean, sure, there's going to be someone out there that says, I mean, right now, I, I could tell you that I, if I had, if I had put Matt Joyce in my lineup the day earlier in, in Tout Wars, I'd be in first place this morning, and I'm not, and that's going to be a story come the end of the season. Someone's going to do a move like that and lose a league on counting stats. Someone else is going to lose a league 
I actually won a league once on uh, on somebody else's reliever giving up a hit and a run, which cost them both an ERA and a whip point in the ninth inning of a game. Uh, this guy really made this guy mad because it was just some nondescript reliever he had in his lineup in the last day of the year. He, he's, he's called in in a blowout and gives up a hit and a run, and I passed him. But, you know, the, you can pass guys in ratios in, in the last day of the year, too. So just it, it's hard. It's... It's as you know. You're gonna make. Do you make a trade for three starting pitchers? Well, it, how do you make up seven homers? You, you can't. You're not gonna trade for Mark Trumbo and make up seven homers either. So it's just. It, it's as hard or as easy to make up points in those categories as it is in the in the uh, in the counting stats. Whenever I look at it, I think of it as a uh, like a foot race, and believe me, it's been a long time since I've been in a foot race, but. <laughs> uh, in a foot race, everybody's running forward, and that's what the counting categories are. And it's hard to catch the guy in front of you because you're both moving forward. You just have to start moving forward faster than he is, and assuming that he has pretty much the same advantages that you do, uh, in the case of home runs or RBIs or steals or whatever, he has players who are getting him home runs, RBIs, or steals, so he's pulling away from you while you're trying to catch up at roughly the same rate. And in a way, if you look at it that way, Home runs, RBIs, and these things are a ratio category in that you need to have a f- better ratio of getting these things than the guy in front of you. But in the, in the ratio categories, ERA ratio and batting average or OBP, every so often the guy in front of you just starts running backwards. And at that point, it's a lot easier to catch him than it is going to be to try to catch him in a category where he is moving forward and you're moving forward and you have to start, uh, picking up a more pace than he has, which can happen if he gets injuries and stuff like that. And you have to certainly be aware of that possibility. Uh, the other possibility I think in home runs and RBIs especially is if you get a Jonathan Lucroy coming across and Jonathan Lucroy is going to replace your second catcher, basically as a null player, a zero player, he could get you five or six more home runs than you reasonably expected. And that's something that you have to keep in mind. No, absolutely. You know, it, it, you're right. You know that that is, and Lucroy is a great example. You know, I mean, especially uh, if he if you happen to have one decent catcher and he's replacing a a, a poor catcher. Yeah, you know, yeah. No, no, that's true. And some you know some teams will you know uh, okay. You said you, you you told me I need Montesi for steals before. Well, he's replacing a second baseman or a shortstop. How does that affect you in your other categories as well? Are you taking a uh, I don't know. Well, Whit Merrifield's gone, so I can't use him anymore. But you know, someone, a, a middle infielder who may be replaceable, that was at least helping you. You know, Brock Holt, maybe because maybe you're going to use Montesi to replace Brock, Brock Holt, who's now probably going to be uh, more of a swingman player. But he was getting you a home run now and then, and some runs in RBIs. What's the check and balance as far as you know gaining in steals and losing in the other categories as well? But that's something that. As far as being aware of what your opponents are doing, uh, that's another thing to look at. So the guy that got Montessi and Fab this weekend, see where he's putting them, because that may help or hurt you chase down points in other categories. So it's it's gonna it's this is especially because this is a two-part Fab weekend in a lot of leagues. The uh, and, and not just that, there's a lot of rookies that have been called up to go along with some of these crossover players. There's a lot of work to be done next Sunday and Monday as far as trying to reevaluate where your team is compared to the rest of the league. It's going to be a uh, you know a lot. Oh, I I think it's going to be more work than I can remember having to do in recent years, just because of all the different types of players that are that are coming over. 
coming over and coming up, as you said, there's uh, and uh, given all the injuries that are taking place, gosh, I was looking at Baseball HQ on Thursday morning, and it was uh, just this guy's hurt, that guy's hurt, this guy's hurt, that guy's mm-hmm. hurt. And so the potential for these young players to come up and make a splash or kill somebody, you know, which can just as easily happen, is really intense. And uh, boy, I, I know it's a lot of work, but isn't it also a ton of fun? Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. Now, you know, I mentioned NFBC before. There's a new NFBC contest that is a points-based contest that's best ball. And there's some people that just absolutely love it because you don't have to make any moves. You know, you do your draft, and every we're all draft next. We'll all take, you know, a draft, sure, I'll draft. You know, uh, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll write you a check. It, it may not clear, but I'll write you a check. You know, I'll do a draft. I may not manage a team, but I'll do the draft. Um but in someone saying that, you know, I think that this should be the format going forward. But then there's those of us that just love the roto aspect of it, the managing the categories aspect of it, which you can't do in a best ball because, you know, what's the actual optimal lineup? You don't know. I mean, you know, because managing categories or whatever. But the uh, the elegance of, of, of managing the categories is, you know, is to me anyway part of the – uh, you know, part of the fun. I, mean, I kind of mentioned Peraza Joyce before. I, I originally had Peraza in my lineup because I, I wanted I wanted the homers, uh, the steals over the homers when Peraza hadn't been sent down yet. But, um, you know, had I I made that decision, had I made a decision a week ago to put Joyce in over Peraza, I wouldn't be complaining about the fact that I didn't put Joyce in fast enough to uh, to get those extra RBIs last night. Todd, you uh, had a column recently in which you discussed in-season park factors, and we should explain briefly for those who might not be familiar with how the process works. Typically, most park factors are calculated on a weighted three-year average, although some adjustments are made when, like when Miami moves the fences in or lowers them or what have you. But generally speaking, you're looking at three-year averages of visiting teams, trying to figure out whether whether certain parks play for runs, for left-handed power, left-handed batting average, and even strikeouts and so forth, which I'm not sure I trust the strikeout one, but in any case, they're, they're reasonably accurate, and they and they uh, certainly uh, provide useful information. But now there's a, a a trend that you can see where people are updating the the park factor to just reflect what's happening in the season that you're in. And I know you you are questioning of the accuracy of these models, right? And a lot of it swings into the you know we, we haven't talked a lot about DFS this year, but. A lot of it's because, you know, you make decisions on a daily basis based upon the park. And I'm, I'm seeing things like, well, Progressive Field is playing as a much better hitter's park this year. And, and Petco Park is, is playing as a much better hitter's park and all these sorts of things. So what I, what I did was I took data from the past three years and I looked at the first half versus the second half park split to find out if, if they're close enough together so that if 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 it's different you can say well okay it's it's through June 30 June 30th or July 4th or whatever this park is playing in x manner is it going to continue to play that way and uh in order to do this sort of study you you need a control you can't just go first half second half so what i i did over the past 3 years uh 3 years data was i did odd games versus even games giving it the same split number of comparisons and in both instances i found basically the data is just all over the place that there's actually some parks that are consistent but there's others that are just all over the place so and i'm not even sure i have enough data yet to say well this park's trustworthy um 
so in my mind, the, the, the park, I, 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 if I hear that a particular park is playing a particular manner, therefore this player is good or bad in DFS, I don't want to say I ignore it because I think you can use that information in a, in a, in a sort of a percent ownership myth uh, guess if other people hear that advice. But I'm, I, I still go by the global, the big number picture, the three-year average as opposed to, well, such and such park. And I think Pittsburgh's one. Pittsburgh, is, is for, at least by the numbers through the first half of the season, was playing more of an offensive park. And I just, you know, I'm not going to believe that uh, a park that's been depressing runs for since its existence suddenly all of a sudden is now uh, a place to go to, to pour the runs on. It's just an anomaly with the numbers that usually fleshes out over the course of the season, but that's another reason why we use three-year averages, because even if you look within the three-year averages of a particular park, you know, it's, they're all, that's one of those things about three-year averages. You get, I don't know, 95, 105, and 115, so the average is 105, but two of those three years, well, one of those years it was well below, and the other year is well above. So what is it really? But like you mentioned, they're, they're, they're useful. They're not the be-all, end-all, but park factors are, it's better to use them than not use them, but they're not sort of the ultimate answer either. Well, especially these short-term ones. Uh, I know when I look at them, the only thing I, I check out is which parks are continuing to play in accordance with what we'd expect from the three-year average. Those are the park factors, the short-term ones that I trust. Any other one that's a big outlier, and in your column you identified some of them were playing 20% different in the sh in this relatively short run, and those figures I don't trust. And then I, I agreed with you when you said that this is an opportunity to fade players who might be uh, overbought because of the belief that they're playing in a park environment that really isn't what it is cracked up to be. I'm almost, I'm almost, I'm almost bummed out that more people aren't you. I've heard some, but in order for the percent ownership to really move, you know, somebody, you know, uh, one of the better analysts has to go on the radio and and say it or write it in their column. I'm hearing it, but I, I'm not hearing it enough that uh, I, I don't think it's moving ownership a ton. But I, you know, every little bit counts. And you know, I, I it's been a, I, the numbers aren't off the top of my head. I don't remember exactly. Uh, what some of them are, but what I what I what I like to do with parks more than anything else is, and this is consistent, is there are some parks that are home run parks, but play fairly neutral for runs, and I think sometimes we get we shy away from using our pitchers in 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 a park like Cincinnati, for instance, because it's a, a home run park, but it's not all that bad for runs, and even Yankee Stadium isn't all that bad for runs. I don't want to use a fly ball pitcher. In Yankee Stadium, because that's how the runs are scored. But if I if I have a visiting pitcher, especially because the Yankees lineup isn't all that great, if I have a visiting pitcher that keeps the ball in the yard, I've got no qualms about streaming them through, uh, using them in DFS or in a spot start against the Yankees. And you know, there's other part, you know, Philadelphia. Well, you use against Philadelphia because they're not very good. But there's several. That's my favorite thing is to find the parks where the home run and the runs are sort of out of sync. And you often can get a pitcher that other people aren't using. In the park, you know what? And the opposite's true. Target Field, for instance, and Kauffman Stadium, they're not pitchers' parks. They're they depress homers, which is good, but they're they're built for gap hitters and things like that. So they increase runs, 
So it might not be a great idea to stream your picture through Kauffman Stadium or, or through Target Field because the park itself, you know, Miami is another one, uh, depresses homers but scores some runs. So those are what I really like to do is find the ones that are the discrepancy between home runs and runs. Didn't you once tell me that Fenway Park has an incorrect reputation insofar as uh, how it's built for hitters? Well, it, 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 it's a plus for hitters. It just it, it crunches homers, though. The right field, as, as people at this point realize, unless you pull the ball right down the line and hit it off a pesky pole, it's the deepest right field in the league. And since they did some construction, and this is it's not recent anymore, it's been a while now, but since they did some construction putting in the uh, over, over home plate, putting in some of those boxes and such, it's harder to hit it over the wall. But it's such a great hitter's park for two reasons. The first being there's just no foul territory. So it doesn't seem like much, but if you save one or two outs or, you know, even an out a game, uh, that, that matters in the long run. And, you know, there's just so many fly balls that, that are off the wall that would have been caught. So there's so many outs that are either turned into an extended to bats on as far as pop-up uh, foul goes or so many outs that, that hit the wall that it's still a, it, it plus, it's a plus for runs. But it's not a plus for homers, for, for hitters. Yeah, and those are the kind of things that you really have to check carefully because ballparks like players get reputations, and sometimes those reputations aren't deserved. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN. And Todd, uh, we were talking earlier about the uh, top players and the uh, upsides and so forth, and you, you, you mentioned how when you're drafting or spending money at an auction for a player, you really want to be sure at the top end that you're going to get what you're going to get. It looks like despite a recent surge, Paul Goldschmidt of Arizona is not going to return first round value this year, even though he was a, a very high pick and usually three, four, five, something like that, sometimes even higher. What lessons are there in Paul Goldschmidt's subpar 2016? It's an interesting question because there's a lot of different lessons on all on, on all different angles. Now you mentioned uh, three, four, five, sometimes higher. I picked him number one in a league over Mike Trout, and I'm actually not sure. I'm sort of wavering about how I think about this because I mentioned before process over outcomes. My process of having Goldschmidt over Trout wasn't that he was a better player, but that because Arizona would provide him an opportunity for more runs and RBIs because that's just the way I I saw it at the beginning of the season. And it to me it was they were very very close and the extra runs and RBIs pushed Goldschmidt over the top. Now I actually flipped when Pollock got hurt. But it, it got hurt so late that you know most most people had already had the opportunity to make that choice, and very few, few people had the choice to make it at the end. And maybe you know when I when I flip back to Trout at the very end. So I'm now thinking you know, but here's the process versus outcome. Was the process wrong to figure that Arizona would score more runs than LA, and therefore put Goldschmidt higher? Or you know what? Don't, you can't figure out the process out. Choose the better player. So to be honest, I'm still thinking about that. But the other end of it, you know, so that therefore maybe it was a mistake to take Goldschmidt first. The other end of it is I think we don't necessarily need our first-round players to be the studs. We just we, we can't have them fail too much. And if a Goldschmidt season where he ends up hitting 295 with – 25 homers and 15 steals if that's his floor to me you know i mentioned bryce harper giancarlo stanton before uh their floor is a lot lower 
their ceilings higher, but their floors lower. So if you did draft Goldschmidt, you didn't get the an ultimate bust. You just didn't get the guy you wanted, but you still got a pretty decent floor. So I don't think it's a necessarily a mistake. I don't think I want him number one next year. Matter of fact, I know I don't, but I, I don't think we're going to you know say he finishes 13th or 12th this year. I don't think he's a wheel pick next year either. I still think he's a mid first round pick because of the the floor. And you know, if this was if this has end up being his worst season, and you ended up getting it, sure, you didn't do as well as you wanted, but you can't complain as much about him as much as some other people could complain about how poorly their first round picks did. Well, I was going to ask you, uh, like, how far down does a player have to get? Or how poor does he have to play in a particular year before he starts making you think twice about the subsequent year? Where would you pick Paul Goldschmidt, or where would you place him as uh, if you had to do it today? Uh, where would you put Paul Goldschmidt on the list as far as where you would slot him in as an ADP type uh, pick? The skills look to be fairly close to what they always are, so I, I need to take a look at the why his powers down a bit. But like I said, he got 17 now. He could six or seven more. 23 or four homers isn't terrible. So uh, to me, he's still a seventh, eighth, ninth sort of player. You know, one of the things you always have to figure out is, well, I put him eighth or ninth. Who are the seven players you're putting before him? And this is going to be, you know, a very interesting season because a lot of these guys that uh, that we wanted to see another year from the Bogarts and 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 Lindors and those sort of players, uh, Corey Seager, have have done it. They've done what we, you know. They're they're now good. So I I have to try to with my head when I'm putting goals for seventh or eighth. What I'm actually doing is trying to figure out who I'm taking before him. And, you know, you always forget guys, but I get him, I don't know, 7th, 8th, or ninth. Then it becomes a matter of, of roster construction. Do I want to put, you know, how do I think about first baseman? Do I want to put Goldschmidt there, or is that, you know, is the opportunity cost of using a first baseman at that pick, is that how I want to construct my roster? But in a vacuum, to me, he's still, he's still a mid-first rounder. Well, Todd, you mentioned guys like Corey Seager, Lindor, Xander Bogarts. Of those three, only one, Bogarts, is actually ahead of Goldschmidt this year as far as uh, mixed 15 value. Uh, Goldschmidt's at $27, and that's not bad. I mean, chances are in an auction people would have paid mid-30s or even higher for him, but he, like you said, he's not actually completely making a bust out of that kind of bid, so it's not a complete disaster. But since we're talking about 2017 and how you slot very guys in. Uh, I'm just looking at the uh, top 10 here right now. Jose Altuve leads uh, baseball at uh, $46 of mixed 15 value. Do you think he's going to be the number one pick next year? I think he will be. I think it's going to be another one of those years where there isn't a consensus, but I think he will definitely be in the mix. Um, he was, I, know, I, I, I got him in the wheel and you know he was a late first rounder this year. Um, I definitely think he's top five. It's going to be interesting too, because all these mentioned the shortstops. No matter, you know, maybe they're not first rounders, but you know, we're going to be talking. I, I, I promise you, we'll be talking about scarcity next spring, and uh, we haven't, which we haven't had to talk about for a couple of years. Not so much because people don't believe in it, because but there was no one to uh, believe in it about. But we're going to have to, you know, that's going to be a topic of conversation again. Is how much do we add, you know, if if at all for scarcity? But Altuve. Well, I mean, the thing about a guy like Altuve is he doesn't need to repeat this season to still be pretty. I mean, he's gonna he can give back homers and give back steals, and definitely give back batting average and still be a top three or five player. So, you know, if if I uh, if I had a number one pick, I would be seriously considering Jose Altuve because he doesn't hurt you with roster construction wise either. 
I was thinking the same thing. The, all the other candidates, um, I don't even think uh, Mookie Betts seems to be, uh, while he's having a great year, he would have to pretty much repeat it like blow for blow to be in the in the discussion. Mike Trout, that team is going to be poor again next year um, if he got traded to someplace where they were good. Daniel Murphy's up at the top of the list. I don't know about that either, although he's got second base eligibility. I don't know, man. I really like Jose Altuve. I don't mind Josh Donaldson as a pick because third base is relatively thin. It's, it is going to be really interesting. And while I'm talking with you about it, any pitchers? Yeah, that's going to be the key. And it's, I mean, I know firsthand how much Clayton Kershaw can do for a team. And I also know that you can construct a pretty darn good roster with him on your team. Uh, you know, I maybe a little humble brag coming, but uh, I picked him fourth in mixed labor, and I have about a 27-point lead. And it's not all because of pitching. I lead the league in both hitting and pitching points at this point, and a lot of it's just pretty darn good luck with injuries and the whatnot. But uh, you know, having taken Kershaw in my first round, I still have more plate appearances than anybody in the league with my offense too. So, um, you know, to sort of really tie this back to what we talked about earlier, I went really, really safe on this team, which is sort of letting me to believe that even in, even in an elite like the NFBC, where I think you need to take chances, if I were to put this team in the NFBC, it'd be doing pretty darn well. So maybe I'm going to back off in my thought that I need to take some chances in order to win the overall in the NFBC. But the, the point being, um, if he's healthy, you know, depending upon how he comes back from this, if he's healthy and, he, and maybe he pitches three or four weeks in, in September and looks good in the spring, you know, Kershaw has to be in play even for number one, even for missing a month. So I do think we are going to be talking about Clayton Kershaw in the mix, uh, especially if he comes back and, and shows, you know, but man, you know, the injury again, I think is going to scare some people away. But if, he sh- if, if enough evidence comes out that it, that it shouldn't be an issue, man, he, he deserves it. I'm curious what you think about Xander Bogarts as a potential top five guy. He's sort of floating around the top five right now. I think he's sixth overall in our estimations at BaseballHQ.com, the calculation of 15 mixed value. And can he grow? And even if he stays the same, is that top five? Even though he's done it for a couple years in a row now, there's a lot behind his hit profile that I don't know that supports the batting average that he's that he's going to have. His hard hit percent just isn't enough for me anyway to support that batting average. So, you know, I think he's very good, but I think he, you know, if you give me Corey Seager or Xander Bogarts for the next five, six, seven years, I'm going to be taking Corey Seager. Um, so, uh, to me. I'm going to let someone else, in my mind, overdraft Xander. I'm going to root for him because I you know, live in New England and that whatnot. But I'm going to let someone else, in my mind, overdraft. Now, there is room for growth in power. I don't think he's going to become uh, a 25-30 home run guy, but I do think he's going to become a better mistake hitter and be able to drive some balls over the wall. But you know, I, I, I see him very, very good. I don't think he's going to be in the class of some of these other guys when, you know, I think Correa eventually will get there again and Seager. Um, I think Lin- I would even take Lindor over Bogarts at this point just because of a, a more well-rounded game. And finally, when we're talking about next year's hitters, uh, how about Chris Bryant? He's uh, now floating around the bottom of the top 10 
and seems to have all the skill in the world, seems to be adding a lot of position flexibility because of the way Joe Madden likes to manipulate his roster in Chicago. Is Chris Bryant growing increasingly attractive, or do you think sort of lower end of the first round is still about right? Yeah, you know, I, I you know, listen, you know, we, some people we were right and wrong about, and I was wrong about Bryant. I don't know if I was so much wrong about him. I think my, my pro, again, process versus outcome. My process says the guy strikes out too much to be, uh, you know, a top player. Well, he cut down on those strikeouts, and now he's a top player. So, you know, I, I don't know that it'll repeat the exact same strikeout or contact rate, whichever way you don't want to look at it. But uh, he's definitely higher on my list than he would be otherwise. And, yeah, he's now back in the first-round picture because it does look like he, he is not going to be the strikeout machine that he showed early on. And this is fine, you know. Players do this. Some players get better, but not everybody does. Of course, there's going to be someone out there who says, well, I knew Bryant would. Well, all right, you knew Bryant would. You also knew 10 other guys would, and they didn't. So, you know, congratulations on Bryant. And finally, uh, Todd, the Blue Jays officially added Francisco Liriano to their roster. It looks like they do intend to use him as a starting pitcher by moving Aaron Sanchez to the bullpen, as has been talked about for the last couple of weeks. We touched on Francisco Liriano briefly on Tuesday during the uh, post-trade roundtable with you, me, and uh, and Ray Murphy. You don't like Francisco Liriano, and it sounded like you uh, would not roster him. In fact, well, to to sort of tease the uh, the RotoWire piece, and you know, to to get a, a joke which you may chuckle at, I ended. I went through each team, and I talked about uh, a move on each team to think about for the upcoming weekend. And what I said about Francisco Liriano in Toronto was, is I'm not touching him with a 10 meter pole. It's not just that he gives up home runs, because you know what? I don't mind Wade Miley going to Baltimore, which is, an, you know, on paper, not a good mix, because Miley goes deeper into games and, and, and keeps you in the game. I just, I, I don't see Liriano going five or, you know, he goes he goes five or six innings, and it's such a lightning lightning wrong as it is with the, with the walk rate. I just, I just don't see how it can work in that park. He was already... You know, I mentioned before, don't worry about Park so much. The extremes I look at, and going from Pittsburgh to Toronto is an extreme. You know, real to real quick, slip something in. On the reverse, I'm, I'm really interested in Ivan Nova going to Pittsburgh because of the extreme in the parks. But I just, I don't know, and and I don't, I I let, I leave the uh, analysis of trades and contracts up to our friend Joe Sheehan. But I just, uh, I just don't. I, I I prefer that we be talking about how I feel Drew Hutchinson would do because Toronto pro- promoted him down the stretch. I think we have something there. I just I don't understand this move and on, on on what Toronto's doing and and how they feel that Lariano can be the guy to eat up innings to keep that vaunted offense in the game. I you know they're going to need eight or nine runs when Lariano's in the mound. Todd Zola, thanks very much, and we'll talk to you again uh, at least once more, maybe twice more during the year. Looking forward to it, Patrick, and um, you know we'll see each other. You know another quick pitch for the Arizona Fall League, uh, the, the the symposium. We're starting to put that program together, so we'll we'll be hanging out back there uh, down in Arizona as well. Okay, Todd, thanks. All right. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, RotoWire, and ESPN. His Twitter handle is at Todd Zola. We have our HQ commentaries coming up, but first let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. During the season, BaseballHQ.com has regular daily analysis of news and rosters and ongoing analysis of player performance 
performance and skills. This week at the site, our regular daily news analysis playing time today looks at many of the players we talked about earlier with Nick and Jock, plus Mike Clevenger, Gary Sanchez, other injuries and more. Our regular Facts and Flukes performance validation this week has looked at Kyle Hendricks, Paul Goldschmidt, Yasmani Tomas, and other players. And we've had a Facts and Flukes spotlight with analyst Ryan Bloomfield going in-depth to look at Atlanta right-handed starter Julio Terran. BaseballHQ.com also has daily matchups reports, a DFS dashboard, minor league scouting, and other columns and insights, plus all the projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your competition. And it's only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have frequent flyers and master notes, and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on the prospects traded at the deadline is BaseballHQ.com Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon. The MLB non-waiver trade deadline was a busy one in 2016 with no fewer than nine top 100 prospects moving to new organizations. The New York Yankees were the big winners as they traded relievers Andrew Miller and Aroldis Chapman to the Cubs and Indians and in return landed four elite prospects in Clint Frazier and Justice Sheffield from the Indians and Glaber Torres and Billy McKinney from the Cubs. Frazier and Torres are both top 50 prospects and have tons of fantasy potential. Frazier is already at AAA and for the year is hitting 270 with 25 doubles, 13 home runs, and 13 stolen bases, and he's really just starting to tap into his full potential. Glaber Torres is just 19 and is holding his own at high A, hitting 270 with 25 doubles, 9 home runs, and 20 stolen bases. He should be able to stick at shortstop over the long term and will continue to add power as he matures and fills out his 6'1", 175 pound frame. The Oakland A's also did very well, sending Josh Reddick and Rich Hill to the Dodgers for three high-end pitching prospects, Grant Holmes, Jarrell Cotton, and Frankie Montas. Montas can hit 100 miles an hour with his fastball, but has been sidelined for most of the season with a rib injury that now requires surgery. He does struggle throwing strikes, but he can blow hitters away with his fastball, giving him some nice fantasy potential even if he ends up as a reliever. Grant Holmes was the Dodgers' first-round pick in 2014 and features a plus mid-90s fastball. His secondary stuff has made a lot of progress, and he still has the potential to be a number two starter once he reaches the majors. One of the more interesting players to be traded is Anderson Espinoza, who was traded by the Red Sox in the Drew Pomeranz deal. Espinoza can also hit 100 miles an hour with his fastball and backs it up with a plus curveball and a plus changeup. The Texas Rangers went all-in, trading three of their top prospects in Luis Ortiz, Louis Brinson, and Dylan Tate to land Jonathan LaCroix, Jeremy Jeffries, and Carlos Beltran from the Brewers and the Yankees. Brinson is a plus athlete who remains raw in some phases of the game, but has the tools to develop into an impact player down the road. Tate was the fourth overall pick in the 2015 draft and has a plus 1-2 punch with a mid-90s fastball and a plus breaking ball. If his changeup continues to develop, he has the stuff to be an impact starter once he reaches the majors. For a more detailed breakdown of all the top prospects traded this July, check out BaseballHQ.com. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scout team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage includes ongoing daily call-ups with prospects like Cleveland left-hander Ryan Merrill, Tampa utility man Richie Schaefer, Milwaukee shortstop Orlando Arcia, Boston outfielder Andrew Benintendi, and more call-ups. 
And in the feature column, The Eyes Have It, Chris Blessing goes out to the ballpark to scout Atlanta left-hander Sean Newcomb and Minnesota right-hander Felix Jorge. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Frequent Flyers commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Cleveland catcher Francisco Mejia and Seattle starter Ariel Miranda. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. As we approach a trade deadline in many leagues, it's important to remember that sometimes the best trades can be the ones that were never made. This week's edition of Frequent Flyers will profile two players. A catcher was almost traded at the Major League trade deadline, but now is on the verge of making history. And a Cuban pitcher who has just earned his first Major League start with the Seattle Mariners. But first, he's an emerging backstop who puts bat to ball easily and controls the strike zone, according to the Baseball HQ 2016 Minor League Analyst. He's Cleveland Indians 20-year-old minor league switch hitting catcher Francisco Mejia, who is currently batting 344 for the single advanced Lynchburg Hillcats. More importantly, Francisco Mejia is doing something that no one else has done in 62 years. Not since Roman Mejia's recorded a hit in 55 straight games in 1954 has anyone recorded a hitting streak longer than the 46-game hitting streak of Francisco Mejia. To put that in perspective, the 20-year-old Mejia is currently only 15 games away from tying Joe DiMaggio's 61-game minor league hitting streak in 1933. However, Joe DiMaggio ranks second on the all-time minor league list behind record holder Joe Wilhoit, who owns a minor league hitting streak record of 69 games in a row in 1919. In other words, Francisco Mejia, who currently ranks seventh on the all-time minor league list, is only five games away from moving up to fourth place behind Joe Wilhoit, Joe DiMaggio, and Roman Mejias. And to think, Francisco Mejia was part of the package that would have set up the Milwaukee exchange for catcher Jonathan Lucroy, until Lucroy vetoed the deal. That's why Francisco Mejia, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they're available in your league. After all, Francisco Mejia did make a pretty big jump in batting average to go from 243 in 2015 to 347 in 2016. Then again, Giants catcher Buster Posey only batted 326 at Class A Advanced, the level where Francisco Mejia is now, only 326 versus 344. Maybe that's not a fair comparison. But if Francisco Mejia wasn't on your radar before, he absolutely should be on your radar now, especially in Dynasty Leagues. Another player who should absolutely be on your radar is 27-year-old Seattle left-hander Ariel Miranda. Acquired in the deadline deal at said starter Wade Miley to Baltimore on July 31st, Ariel Miranda has gone 3-0 with a 193 ERA in his past seven minor league starts. Even so, Ariel Miranda's 2016 minor league stats do not necessarily jump off the page. Ariel Miranda has posted a mediocre 4-7 record with a 3.93 ERA through 19 starts at AAA in 2016. Yet, despite those rather pedestrian numbers, Ariel Miranda's pitching skill numbers, according to BaseballHQ.com, tell a different story. 
Ariel Miranda's dominance rate of 7.8 strikeouts per nine in 2016 is well above our benchmark rate of seven strikeouts per nine used to identify baseball's elite pitchers. Plus, Ariel Miranda has exhibited excellent control as represented by his control rate, according to BaseballHQ.com, equivalent to the rate of 2.8 walks per game. Not to mention that Ariel Miranda, after playing seven seasons of the Cuban National Series, has advanced very quickly through Baltimore's farm system, going from the rookie-level Gulf Coast League in 2015 all the way up to making his major league debut for Baltimore against Seattle, yes, Seattle, his current team, on July 3, 2016. Even though Ariel Miranda gave up three earned runs and only two innings pitched against the Mariners on July 3rd, Mariners scouts must have seen something that would have made them want to trade for him. Indeed, making his first Major League start only a month after his Major League debut, now playing for the Seattle Mariners instead of against them, Ariel Miranda delivered a solid performance versus the Boston Red Sox on Thursday, August 4th, allowing two earned runs off eight hits and striking out five batters in six innings pitched. Certainly a quality start, even if perhaps it was only a spot start. With Taiwan Walker returning soon from the DL, Ariel Miranda might be sent back to AAA again. Or maybe he stays in Seattle's rotation, and maybe another pitcher gets sent down. The bottom line is that Seattle seems to have found something, and maybe you might find something if you consider adding both Francisco Mejia and Ariel Miranda. Our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about why I love this year's double deadline. So how'd you like that Monday deadline? I know a lot of fantasy owners in weekly moves leagues don't like it, but I think it's great, and I wish it happened more than five times in the next 34 years. Well, what do I like about it? I play American League only, and a big part of roster management in a single league format is setting up for the deadline and the potential studs who might cross over from the National League, or that other league, as we call it. How much fab should we spend in the early season? How much should we save for the deadline? My league also has weekly moves, which adds a layer to the tactical management. According to the excellent OnRoto.com website, the Tout Wars stats and service provider, about two-thirds of leagues are weekly transaction leagues. Most of them typically have their tranny deadline on Sunday, and since the Major League July 31st deadline usually falls on a weekday, all the traded crossover players are available at the same time, the subsequent Sunday night. As we know, this year was different. Because July 31st fell on a Sunday, Major League Baseball moved its trade deadline to Monday, August 1st. As a result, all the players who were traded on Monday missed that usual Sunday fantasy deadline and are going to be eligible for bidder claim the following Sunday night, August 7th. To make a long story short, if it isn't already too late, fantasy owners had two trade deadline opportunities, and that created an interesting tactical question. On that first Sunday, should an owner bid aggressively, maybe even go all-in, or use a privileged waiver slot to get one of the players who crossed over in the pre-deadline week? By acting fast, the owner does get an extra week of stats, and a week is about 4% of the season. For a starter, that's one start for sure, maybe two. For a reliever, some save opportunities. For a hitter, 25, maybe 30 plate appearances. As well, making the move now means added certainty. The owner knows he has acquired an asset. 
It's like that old saw about a Greg bird in the hand is worth two in the Sam bush. The advantage of waiting and accepting the added risk is that the owner might still be in the running should some better players make the jump between leagues, including players who might cross over even later by getting through waivers. That doesn't happen quite as often these days, but it does occur. Of course, a huge factor is the caliber of players involved. The pre-week list this year in NL only included Aroldis Chapman crossing to the Cubs. This is a no-brainer bid for the owner with the most fab, or the hammer. But hammerless NL-only owners had to consider whether to go in on Eduardo Nunez, an all-star but a dubious one, moving to San Francisco. In American League-only leagues, the first deadline had mid-tier players, Melvin Upton, Lucas Harrell, Tyler Clippert. And to add further confusion in some leagues, prospects can also be promoted at the time, like speedster infielder Raul Mondesi was in Kansas City. The waiting, for the most part, paid off. At the deadline on Monday, Jonathan Lucroy crossed over to the American League somewhat unexpectedly to Texas. Lucroy was even more valuable than most crossovers. Of course, all crossovers, even of modest worth, will improve an only league fantasy squad because they will be replacing an often sub-replacement fifth outfielder or middle or corner infielder. But being able to replace a second catcher with an 800-plus OPS all-star, that's like hitting the Powerball, relatively speaking. American League-only owners who rolled the dice could also target starting pitchers like Mike Bolsinger and Francisco Liriano, now of Toronto, reliever Jeremy Jeffries going to Texas, and third baseman Matt Duffy going to Tampa. He will quickly acquire shortstop status if we believe pronouncements from the Rays' management. National League owners who passed up on Chapman or got outbid also had decent pickings. The possibilities included starting pitchers Rich Hill, Matt Moore, Van Nova, and Drew Hutchison all going to better situations. Relief pitchers Jesse Chavez and Joe Smith, and Josh Fields, who was sent to AAA but is pitching very well there and recently got recalled, and outfielder Josh Reddick, of course. On the Tuesday Trade Deadline Roundtable edition of Baseball HQ Radio, experts Ray Murphy and Todd Zola both recommended targeting Hutchison and staying far, far away from Liriano. Zola also liked Ivan Nova for park change reasons. So, if the question is, how should I play this, the answer is, there's no right answer. Of course, the decision is highly contextual, subject to analysis of the free agents, the rostered players they would replace, your fantasy team status in the fab standings and the league standings and the category standings, other teams' category standing potentials and needs, the possibility of trading... There's a lot to consider, and that's what makes it great. At its root, our game is supposed to be a test of player acumen, of course, but it's also a game, and it properly rewards those who understand the game and play it well. Fantasy baseball tests our ability to strategize, to identify tactical opportunities, and then to formulate and execute specific actions. This year's double deadline created an environment for a lot of last-minute in-league wheeling and dealing, especially in leagues that allow trading of fab money. And there were furious negotiations that, at their best, feel a lot like the Major League Baseball trading deadline. That's a big part of the challenge and the fun. Meanwhile, if you don't like the double deadline, I understand. And you'll be pleased to know that you won't have to deal with it again for another six years. July 31st doesn't fall on a Sunday until the year 2022. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up.
Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 5th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 38 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN. Todd's a regular guest here at Baseball HQ Radio and one of the most insightful analysts in the fantasy baseball business. Plus, he's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet in a business full of them. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute Analyst was Rob Gordon. And our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt or send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, and you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8-star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in a week when our Friday feature guest expert will be Ron Chandler from ronchandler.com and, of course, the founder of Baseball HQ. That'll be the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.